I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. If you're just joining us today, uh, we have been walking through the Sermon on the Mount uh, bit by bit. Today we are looking at, we're actually right in the middle of the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, 9 to 13 or so. And so we are looking at Matthew 6, uh, 10, part of 10, just one phrase, the third part of this prayer. So you can open to Matthew 6. In his book, The Great Good Thing, Andrew Claven shares his story. His story of how he, uh, a best-selling author of murder mystery novels and uh, a secular Jew from New York City, came to faith in Jesus and chose to be baptized. He, he writes this in the introduction to his book. No one could have been more surprised than I was. I never thought I was the type. I had been born and raised a Jew and lived most of my life as an agnostic. I believed in the fullest freedom of thought into the widest reaches of fact and philosophy. I believed in science and analysis and reasonable explanations. I had no time for magical thinking of any kind. I couldn't bear solemn piety. I despised even the ordinary verities of willful blindness to the tragic shambles of life on earth. And as for what the philosopher Schopenhauer once called the Christian banal optimism that forced praise singing cheer in the face of pain and disappointment and inescapable death oh god how i hated it set my teeth on edge he didn't think he was the type he had no time for christianity or religion more generally but through many twists and turns through many ups and some pretty deep downs god captured andrew's heart Andrew came to see the truth about God, the truth about Jesus. He, he came to see, he, he writes this, the story of Christ's life, death, and resurrection not only made sense in itself, it made sense of everything I had experienced and everything I had come to know. It made sense of the world. And so, having become convinced of the truth about Jesus and the great goodness of God and God's redemptive work, Andrew realized that he had become a disciple of Jesus. He had become a believer, and so he chose to be baptized, taking a step that, that he knew would be public, that he knew could have negative impact on his career as a writer in New York and in Hollywood. But it was one he knew he had to take one he knew he wanted to take because the gospel was true because god was real and god was good and there was no other way to move forward he concludes his story with these words by the hilarious mercy of god i had made my way to the great good thing to this faith in jesus and his goodness his love his grace his redemption Andrew Claven came to know Jesus. He came to know uh, the reality of God, the goodness of God, the goodness of God's redemptive work through Jesus, and he knew there was no other way for him. There was no other choice. Christianity was true. God was real. God was good. This morning, as we return to our study of the Lord's Prayer, as we make our way through the Sermon on the Mount, uh, we come to the third petition of the prayer, Your will be done. And it's vital for us to see, it's vital for us to grasp as we pray this, the great goodness of God. 
without a vision, without an understanding, a grasp of the, the great goodness of God, without seeing the goodness of God, this petition will be one that we will only pray through gritted teeth, with reluctancy, with hesitation. But when we see, when we see the goodness of God, the great goodness of God, we will be able to pray this prayer with joy, with delight, with boldness and passion. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is prefaced by the announcement of good news, that, that in Christ's coming, a whole new order of existence is broken into this world, that, that heaven is invading earth, that the future is spilling into the present. I have been contending throughout this series that when the good news takes hold of our heart, when it takes root in a person, something happens. And that something that happens is described for us by Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount. That something that happens is the creation of a new kind of humanity. Men and women with different characteristics, with different purpose, with different behaviors, with different motivations. It's a creation of gospelized humanity. Men and women brought into being by the power of the gospel through the Spirit. I have reminded you week by week that the Sermon on the Mount is not Jesus giving us a new law. It's not Jesus giving us the old law cranked up on steroids. It's not a set of rules. No, here Jesus is painting a picture for us, a portrait of this new kind of humanity, gospelized humanity. Over the last number of Sundays, we have been making our way slowly through the Lord's Prayer, this prayer that Jesus teaches his disciples, that he teaches us to pray in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus teaches us how we are to relate to the one that he calls Father. And he begins by teaching us to call God our Father. That, that there is this deep intimacy that we can have with, with God the Father just like Jesus does. And Jesus teaches us to pray, our Father, not, not my Father. He is my Father and your Father through repentance and faith. But he teaches us to pray, our Father. Pointing us to the fact that, that when we come to Christ, when we enter into that relationship with God, we enter into fellowship with his people. We in the West have lost sight of the, the deeply important communal aspect of our life in Christ. That is, we are called into His people. God isn't populating heaven with a bunch of individuals. He's forming a people. Pray, our Father. Then Jesus teaches us that our first concern should be concerns related directly to God. The, the first three of six petitions use the pronoun your. Your name your kingdom, your will. That is, before we pray for the very real needs that we have, we'll get to those in the second half of the prayer. We begin with God's agenda. First, hallowed be your name. Father, would you manifest who you are? Make your name known. Make who you are. His name represents all that he is. God, make who you are known in all the earth. Would you do what only you can do, Father? Make your name hallowed. Show yourself. Reveal yourself to all around us. Second, we prayed, your kingdom come. Father, would you reign without rival? Would you, would you exercise what is rightfully yours? You already are King of kings and Lord of lords. Lord, may we see that come in increasing fullness on the earth. Lord, come and reign. Let your kingdom break in. Let the future invade the present. This morning we come to the third and final petition 
in the first half of the prayer, the third and final petition with your, and that is your will be done. As I've done week each week, we want to just review the whole prayer together as we move into this verse. Jesus teaches us to pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Today we focus on that third petition. Uh, Our Father, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There are four things as we reflect on this third petition of the Lord's Prayer. I want to speak to four matters, four things. First, the pattern for us to follow. Second, the struggle for us to surrender. The, the, The third, the truth that we are to believe. And fourth, the problem that we are to resist. So first, the pattern we are to follow. It really should come as no surprise to us that when Jesus teaches us to pray, he teaches us to pray uh, to the Father, to his Father and our Father, our Father, your will be done. When we look, step back and look at Jesus' life, we see that Jesus' whole life centers on, focuses on the will of his Father. Early on in the story, Luke 2 includes this story. Jesus is just a young boy. He's 12 years old. His parents have taken him to the temple in Jerusalem, and they're, they're on their way home. They travel with a big crowd from Nazareth, obviously, and they assume that Jesus is with them along the way, and, and nighttime comes, and they realize that Jesus is not there, and they panic, and they hoof it back to Jerusalem, and they look everywhere for him, and they find him, and where do they find him? They find him in the temple. He's with the religious uh, leaders, and he's, he's listening to them, and he's asking them questions, and, and his parents say, why, why have you done this to us, Jesus? And Jesus says, well, didn't you know that I had to be about my father's business? I had to be about what my father's about in, in his house? I, didn't you know that? That's what I'm about, Mom and Dad. In, in John 4, we read the story of Jesus and his disciples traveling through Samaria. And Jesus, they stop at a well, and Jesus sits there. We read that he's tired from the journey, and his disciples go into town to get takeout, and Jesus waits there because he has a divine appointment. This woman comes, a Samaritan woman. She comes to draw water by herself in the heat of the day. And Jesus has this encounter with her that transforms her life. She's gonna, she, she encounters Jesus. She's going to go back to town, and through her testimony, many in her town are going to come to faith. She's going to go back to town and say, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. And if you know the story, everything she did isn't all good and flattering, but she's been set free by Jesus. And so people come, and there's this massive transformation. So she runs off. The disciples come back, and they're like, what are you doing, Jesus? They didn't say it, but they're wondering, why are you talking to this Samaritan woman? In that day, you just, men wouldn't speak to a woman in that context. And a Samaritan, the Jews hated the Samaritans. And they go, here, Jesus, we got your food. And Jesus says, I don't need that. My food is to do the will of my Father who sent me. He he speaks to the fact that he is satisfied. He's been nourished by doing the will of his Father. In John 6, Jesus is preaching to crowds and he says this, For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. In Matthew 12, 
Jesus' family comes. He's just set a man free from demon possession and healed uh, this man who was blind and, de- and, and deaf. And someone says, your family is outside. And Jesus says, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and brothers. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. In Hebrews 10, Jesus says these words. The author of Hebrews records, I have come, Jesus says, to do your will, my God. And in Matthew 26, as Jesus' life draws to an end on the night that he would be betrayed in the garden, Jesus is praying. And Jesus prays, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will but as you will. Jesus' entire life centered upon the will of His Father on doing what His Father willed Him to do. His whole life is centered on that. And so it should come as no surprise to us that Jesus teaches us to pray, Father, Your will be done. That is the pattern, the example that Jesus sets for us. Now, this needs to be said Before Jesus is our example, before He is the pattern that we are to follow, He is our rescuer, thank God. Because the reality is, though He always centered His life on the will of the Father, you and I have not done that. We have acted in rebellion. We have sinned against God. We have have rejected His will and gone our own way. And because of that, Christ came and He lived a life of perfect obedience. And He went to the cross and died the death that you and I deserve. And so because He is our rescuer, He is also our pattern, our example to follow. And Jesus' life centered on the will of the Father. And so Jesus teaches us to pray, Our Father in heaven, Your will be done. As His disciples... As his apprentices, as his followers, it only makes sense that we would concern ourselves with, that we would desire what he desired, and that is the will of the Father, that the will of the Father would be done. So that's the pattern. Let's turn secondly to the struggle that we have to surrender. What is clear is that for Christ, the will of his Father was paramount, it was central. Jesus Uh, And and so he teaches us here to pray this, Father, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But here's the reality for many of us. If we are completely honest, praying this part of the Lord's prayer is, let's let's say, hard. It's it's difficult to pray. Uh, we, 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 We might, if we're being thoughtful, we might feel reluctant It might be through gritted teeth that we pray this prayer. Here's what Daryl Johnson writes. Some pray the petition with gritted teeth. Okay, have it your way. Others pray the petition in resignation. I guess I really do not have any other choice, do I? Still others pray the petition in resentment. I do not like this at all, but your will be done. See, many of us don't want to pray this prayer because quite honestly, we're partial to our own will. See, we've got plans. We've got dreams. And, and if we have to pray this, we pray it really hoping that God doesn't mess with our plans. Because I remember as a little kid 
growing up in church hearing about God's will. And, and I remember it scared me. I don't know how old I was. And I don't know if exactly it was a prayer or just a thought, but I absolutely remember this going through my mind. Oh, please, please, please don't make me a pastor. I just thought that would be so incredibly boring. I did just like, and I was terrified that God would do this. Oh, God, no. I have plans. I have dreams. You're going to mess them up. That's, that's why this can be such a struggle to pray, to pray honestly. Because we've already got something. I don't know how many of you have heard of, uh, it's a South Indian monkey trap. Coconut hollowed out with a small hole at one end, chained to a stake. And they put some rice or some fruit in there. It's, and the hole in that coconut is large enough that a monkey can fit it, their hand. But once they grab that rice, they can't get it out. And so they're caught, not by anything physical ultimately, but by their unwillingness to let go. And, and, and that is that not a picture of you and I so often? We have our plan. We have our agenda. We have our dreams. And to pray this prayer, your will be done, it, it's, it's frightening because we don't want to let go. We don't want to let go of what we have planned. So if we're going to pray it, pray it honestly, we need to surrender our will to the, to the Father. We need to surrender our desires, our wants, our dreams to God. And in order, it's not just surrender in general, it's surrender to God, and that means that, that we need to trust God. We need to trust Him. We need to trust that God is good. And yet, the reality is so often we have come to believe things that are not true. We, we've come to doubt God. In fact, is that not what happened in the garden in the very beginning of the story of humanity? Satan came to Eve and said, did, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? No, God didn't say that. And, and then he said, you will not certainly die. God, For God knows that when you eat from it, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You know what Satan was doing there? He was... He was Planting doubt in Eve's mind. God's not really good. He's keeping something from you. Don't, he, you can't trust Him. You, you need to do this. This will make you like God. God is keeping something good from you. The temptation in the garden was to doubt God's goodness. To, to doubt that He was trustworthy. To doubt that, that He had their best in mind to think that he was this cosmic killjoy. When I was around seven years old at a birthday party, and one of the gifts that I received was a board game, Star Wars, Escape from the Death Star. At that point, I hadn't watched Star Wars yet, but I was like seven, and it looked cool. It had that X-Wing fighter on there. It just looked really cool. My parents were unfamiliar with Star Wars. At least I think they were, they were uncomfortable with me keeping it. And so my dad said he was going to take it to the store and exchange it for something else. And I didn't want something else. I wanted Star Wars, Escape from the Death Star. And I, I could be pretty stubborn. And so I just, I, I, no, I don't want something else. I don't want something else. I don't want something else. And finally my dad said, okay, fine, I'll go by myself. 
and he took my Star Wars Escape from the Death Store game, and he went back to the store, and he exchanged it and came home with this game called Perfection. <laughs> I didn't want it. I didn't want it. I didn't want it. And, and so my dad let my brothers play with it. And they were in another place in the house. I could hear them. I couldn't see them. They started playing with this game. Some of you are familiar with perfection. And I heard them laughing. I heard them just delighted, having fun. And I was sitting there going, I want Star Wars Escape from the Death Star. But, but in time, and I don't think it was that long, I should ask my dad if he remembers this. I humbled myself, and I went, and I played perfection. And and like truth be told, every illustration breaks down. I, I think Star Wars Escape from the Death Star today would be super cool. I love Star Wars. But I didn't have a clue what it was then. It just I wanted my way. I wanted my will. The reality is the game that my dad replaced it with, I, we had so much fun. Me and my brothers laughing, just delight with this, this, this other game that he gave me. See, the, the truth is that my dad loves me. And he wanted good for me and for whatever reason thought this Star Wars game is not for you. We're not comfortable with that. It's not good. We're going to give you this. But, but it was out of his goodness, the goodness of his love for me and his care for me. And so this is why it's so often hard for us to surrender and to pray your will be done because we doubt God's goodness. We, we are not sure we can trust him. What if he... What if he gives us something we don't want? What if he makes us do something we don't want? What if he, what if he makes me a pastor? That'd be so boring. Brings us to the third thing, the truth that we need to believe. What is God's will? Who, who is God is the question that stands behind that. The, the word translated will is, is a Greek word, thelema, that, that means a desire, the uh, the delight, the, the pleasure, God's good pleasure. It, it speaks of, of what you wish for, what you long for. That's God's will. So w- when we pray God's will to be done, we're praying that, that what God desires, what God wishes for, that the good, his, his good delight, His good pleasure will happen, will come to fruition. That's what we're praying for, His purposes. Daryl Johnson writes this, your will be done means your purpose and pleasure be done, your design and delight be done. And so here's part of our problem. If we think of God's will and think only of God's commands, let's say, that we're to obey that, then then we're we're missing the point in an enormously huge way. We're so short-sighted. To be sure, it is God's will that we obey what His Word teaches, that we obey His commands. For sure. But I've been making the point week after week after week that the Lord's, uh, sorry, the Lord's Prayer, that the, the Sermon on the Mount is not, an, and it's not a new law. It's not the old law cranked up on steroids. This isn't about rules. It is a picture of gospelized humanity. It's a picture of who you and I are becoming when the gospel takes root, when we, we come to know the goodness, the grace, the love of God through Christ. Our lives are changed. The future breaking into the present, heaven invading earth. We are being restored to who we are created to be. That's the truth of it, and that's what God's commands ultimately are about. But God's, it's, it's not merely about rule keeping. And so if we ask what is God's will, we, we need to step back and survey the entire biblical story. It begins with the creation account. 
When God created humanity, Adam and Eve, God bestowed upon us incredible dignity. And, and you know, it's all the more rich if we understand some of the other creation stories the surrounding nations had. In, in all of those stories, humanity is an afterthought. Humanity is created to be a slave to the gods. Humanity lives in fear and at the beck and call of all the gods, but not in the biblical story. In the biblical story, God creates Adam and Eve. He creates us and gives us great dignity. He creates us as his image bearers. And he commissions us to, to represent him, to be fruitful and multiply, to be co-creators, to participate with him in creation and to rule over, to, to rule over and, and to help with the flourishing of all of creation, all of the earth. That's the language uh, of the Bible. God created us as co-creators, co-caretakers with him, his regents, his image bearers, representing him in his good creation, doing his good work of creativity, helping all of creation flourish. What God did in the garden was our responsibility to, to help it happen everywhere. And so that's called the creation mandate. And though sin has certainly marred things, has marred the created order, the creation mandate still stands. And so what is God's will? Well, we can say this. When, when a musician composes and performs a, a beautiful piece of music, when they engage in that creative work, God is delighted. When a gardener plants a, a tree or, or a bush, or a, a plant and, and, and fertilizes and waters and, and pulls out the weeds, God is delighted. When an architect designs a beautiful home, when a builder builds it, God is delighted. When a teacher instructs and cultivates the learning of a child, God is delighted. As we participate in the creation mandate to be fruitful and multiply, to nurture uh, this good creation as God's representatives, as His image bearers, God is delighted. That is part of God's will, God's desire, is the flourishing of all of creation. Creation is part of the biblical story. And so too is the story of the fall, our rebellion from, against God and His work of redemption. See, sin, we need to understand again, sin is not only a violation of a law or a rule or a command. It is the breaking of a relationship. It is treason. God, in His love, created Adam and Eve, placed them in a garden, gave them this great responsibility, the creation mandate. And He put a tree there and said, don't eat from this one tree. That tree, not so much a test, is just a sign that their authority, the authority that God had given them, is not ultimate authority. And yet they chose to reject God's authority. They chose to follow their own will. And all of humanity is plunged into sin and darkness. But God did not abandon us. He did not abandon the world or humanity. God set in motion His plan of redemption by which He would reverse the effects of sin. He would reverse the curse and set all things right. He called Abram and in Genesis 12, very early on in the biblical story, what's his promise to him? I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. And through you, I will bless all the nations of the earth. God's will, God's desire, his good pleasure is to create a culture of blessing 
to pour out his blessing on all of creation, to restore all that has been lost through rebellion and sin. God's good purpose, his good pleasure is, this, is to, to show his goodness, to bless. Daryl Johnson writes this, the Father of Jesus finds no pleasure in people being in bondage. His will is that we be free, that we live in the very freedom he enjoys. The Father's good pleasure is that creation be liberated from the powers of sin and evil. The Father finds no pleasure in our chains. And then Christ comes, Christ bursts onto the scene and he announces good news that in his coming a whole new order of existence is breaking in. Heaven is invading earth. The future is spilling into the present. The God in him is restoring things. He is setting things right. Jesus shows up in a synagogue in Nazareth and he stands and he reads from the scroll of Isaiah and he says this, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. God's desire, his will, his good pleasure is to bless, to pour out his goodness on all of creation, to restore all that has been lost through sin and rebellion. Christ's purpose is to do the will of his Father, and the will of his Father is to bless, to pour out his goodness, to set people free, to set things right, to restore what sin has broken. And so when we think back to God's laws, we think of the Ten Commandments, God's commands in Scripture, they're not arbitrary rules. I've said this a gazillion times. God didn't create people and go, shoot, I got people, I got to give them some rules. That's not how it happened. Right? Jesus, God didn't say you shall have no other gods before me because he's an egomaniac, but because, because he knows that we were created to know him and to love him and to live in intimate fellowship with him and that nothing else in all of creation will ever satisfy that deepest longing of our hearts. And so if we pursue other gods, if we make lesser things into ultimate things, they will leave us broken and hungry and thirsty. So he says, don't have other gods Have me. He says, you shall keep the Sabbath. Keep it holy. Not not as some rule to keep. The Pharisees turned it in as rule. They they calculated how many steps you could take from your property. They found loopholes. If you bring a bucket of dirt, you can put it down, and then you can walk that many more steps. It was all about rule keeping for them. And Jesus says, no, this is a day of rest. This is a gift to receive. This this is something you can stop working. You You can stop working. I'll be God. The world will continue to turn. Take a day. Receive this gift of rest. Jesus, the commandment you shall not commit adultery is not about restricting our sexual pleasure. It's putting the appropriate boundary on it so that we don't, through our sexual behavior, misusing it, that we don't hurt ourselves and hurt others. You shall not covet. It's not that God doesn't, he wants God. God wants us to find contentment in what we have and ultimately to find contentment in him. Go through all of God's biblical commands. God is not a cosmic killjoy. God is a loving Heavenly Father who longs to pour out His goodness and bless us, to bless all of creation. He longs for us to experience life as it was intended in deep, intimate fellowship with Him, in right relationships with others and with creation. 
our Father's will, His good pleasure, is that we would experience life as it was meant to be. So brothers and sisters, God's will is not something to be feared, something to be avoided. God's will is profoundly good. The Apostle Paul calls it good and perfect. See, our problem is that we are so marred by sin, our hearts have been so bent that we foolishly think we know better than God. That, that we'll look for fulfillment and satisfaction in lesser things that will never meet that deepest, deepest longing in your heart. We pursue other things that will bring destruction and pain. We were created to know Him. To live in intimate fellowship with our loving Heavenly Father. To receive His goodness, His blessings. Leaves us with one last thing that I want to speak to, and that is the problem we need to withstand. To say that God's good pleasure, that His will is for us to experience His goodness, His blessings, to experience life as He originally intended it, is not to say that our life will be all roses and sunshine. There is a lot of suffering in this world, and Probably everyone here could point to moments in their own life where you have suffered, and if you haven't, you will. I don't say that to scare you, but if you live long enough, you're going to experience suffering. You're going to go through hard things. This world is not the way it's supposed to be. Not yet. I say this all because we need to, to understand that we are in the midst of a story, God's grand story of redemption. And because of sin, this world is messed up. Because of sin, things are at the moment not the way they should be. Jesus himself says in John, in this world you will have trouble. We shouldn't be surprised when we experience trouble, when we experience difficulty, when we suffer. But here's what we need to know. Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart for I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. The story is not over. God, through Christ, is on the move. He has come into this broken world. The kingdom of God is breaking in. The future is spilling into the present. Heaven is invading earth. The life of the future can be experienced now. Not, not in all its fullness, but already, yes. It is already present. It is already certain. It is already here. And though not yet fully visible, though not yet fully consummated, though not yet fully present, a day is coming. A day is coming when we will experience the will of God in all fullness, the blessings, the goodness of God. All things will be set right. The curse will be reversed. All things will be as they are to be. No more crying. No more pain. No more suffering. No more death. Paul writes these glorious words. In 1 Corinthians 2, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love Him. God is a God who is good, a God who wants to bless. And yes, that doesn't mean that we experience all those blessings now, though He does bless us in many ways, even in the midst of our suffering. But we can live with certainty. Because this is who God is. This is His good pleasure to bless, to bless us with His goodness.
Andrew Claven, after rejecting God, the idea of Christianity for years and years and years, was brought to this place of surrender where he realized God's goodness, God's goodness in Christ, God's goodness in his redemption, and he, at 49, surrendered to Jesus and was baptized. He surrendered to God's will, to God's goodness in his life. Daryl Johnson writes this, the more I understand what the Father of Jesus is on about in the world, the more I realize that I am foolish not to want the Father's will done on earth as it is in heaven. We can pray this not with gritted teeth, but with bold, confident delight because God is good and already the future is breaking into the present. That's what this whole sermon is about. God in Christ is invading earth with heaven, the future spilling into the present. Already that is true. And one day we will know all of this in all fullness. All will be set right. All will be as it should be. And we will know in fullness the blessings and the goodness of our Heavenly Father who loves us. So we pray, our Father, your will be done. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.